so today's topic is uh, divine revelation in the Bible. And uh, in Mass today, Father G mentioned that divine revelation is about creating that relationship with God and how he uh, forms that relationship. And all relationship is about get, is about getting to know one another. And divine revelation is how we get to know one another within the context of the church. Uh, today's presenter is Al Forrester, and Al is not just a, a, a great theologian, he's also a friend, and he's also my godson's father. So uh, with that, uh, Al, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Bernadette. I, uh, good morning, everybody. I, I appreciate the uh, uh, opportunity to share some thoughts with you uh, on divine revelation. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, different avenues that so we could have gone down uh, on this topic. So, I'm, But what I thought I would do is sort of take a very, very high level view of it and uh, present kind of a, maybe a more sweeping picture <clears throat> so that you have a good idea of how the church sees and understands divine revelation. Um, and uh, of course, we're open to any and all questions. I guess we'll handle that through chat or what have you. But um, so I'm going to start out in prayer and then I'm going to share my screen in the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be an acceptable sacrifice to you. Amen. <clears throat> so let me bring up my screen. Where is my screen? Okay. All right. Can everyone see that? I'm good. Okay. All right. <clears throat> when we talk about divine revelation, we're talking about <clears throat> one of the things we're talking about is the Bible, of course. And um, so I think it's helpful to think about why, why should we even read the Bible? What's the point of it? And there are different reasons. There are some modern reasons or scholarly reasons in that it's, you know, contains interesting facts about the history, about history, about the cosmos, about anthropology. Um, <clears throat> you know, so it's a, it's interesting from that perspective. It's also culturally, it's, it's extremely important. It is the most widely read, most widely published book in the history of humanity. It is, that in and of itself tells us that it's something we should pay attention to. It's an artifact of human history, but it also has a personal dimension. Um, it has a human dimension and a divine dimension. If you see it through the eyes of faith, um, because it gives us both knowledge of God um, and knowledge of ourselves. So it has that uh, interior dimension that uh, opens things up uh, for us. <clears throat> and scripture tells us, again, these are the things that we understand through the eyes of faith. It tells us who God is, reveals God to us who he is, all powerful and all loving. We might be able to discern God, that God exists through nature, but we don't know a whole lot about God necessarily from that. Um, 
but through scripture, we know more about him. Um, it's also intended to reveal us to ourselves, to reveal man to himself, to show us who we are and uh, how we have a radical need for him. And many, many, many people throughout the centuries have seen themselves and discovered themselves in the light of sacred scripture. I mean, you can think of, uh, for example, uh, St. Francis of Assisi uh, or uh, St. Augustine, you know, found themselves, if you will, in scripture. And, and maybe you've had that experience too, where you've read scripture and just like we did through the exercise that Carla led us through, we said, wow, I really see myself in that scripture. So scripture shows man who he is, not, uh, not in regard to his customs, but in regard to those things which do not change, those things which are eternal. And when we think of the word scripture, we think of canon, the canon of scripture, but canon is a Greek word and it means rule or measure, that which does not change while other things are changing. <clears throat> so it shows us who we are with respect to those things who, that are not changing. And then the psalmist says that uh, in chapter 18 that, it, that the scripture illuminates our lives. It shines a bright spotlight on us. And it, and it also shines this light, the same light on the relationship between us and God. <clears throat> so if you're interested in theology, you should read scripture because it's the foundation of theology. Theologos, theology, God word, the study of God. So it's embedded in the word itself. Um, and in Vatican II, we read in De Verbum, which we'll see a little bit more, that, that uh, it's the, the word of God, De Verbum, is the union of sacred scripture and what we call sacred tradition in the Catholic Church. It's both of those things together. <clears throat> it is um, sacred uh, tradition that provides the context uh, through which we understand sacred scripture. So we have sacred scripture. How do we understand it? What does it mean for us? Our Catholic tradition provides the light that we can use to see um, and understand sacred scripture. There's the there's sort of the, the story about uh, you know if I if I how, how do I understand a sentence? If I read something, it can mean many things, right? Uh, if I said, for example, I never I never said you stole the money. Well, what does that mean? You know, it could mean I never said you stole the money. Bernadette said you did. Or I never said you stole the money. I just thought you did. Or I never said you stole the money, just kind of borrowed it. I never said you stole the money, you, you stole something else. You know, so depending on it, just the words themselves uh, may not give you the understanding that God is necessarily intending. And so we have uh, sacred tradition to help us provide that context. And so what we say philosophically is there's a difference between formal 
sufficiency and material sufficiency. So we say that scripture is materially sufficient for our faith, but it is sacred tradition that provides the formal sufficiency for that. So what do I mean by that? Well, so I've got lumber, I got a pile of lumber and bricks and nails and shingles and concrete. So I materially have a house, but I don't really have a house. I've just got the stuff to make a house with. It's the architectural plans and, uh, and, and all the thought behind the building of the house that give it the formal sufficiency that help bring everything together into the house, into, it, into reality. <clears throat> so while scripture may be formally sufficient, sorry, materially sufficient, we need sacred tradition to help provide that formal sufficiency so we can understand it. And so in Vatican II, we read that there's a close connection between sacred scripture and tradition. And both of them flow from the same divine wellspring and merge into a unity, okay? And sacred tradition takes the word of God by uh, entrusted to us by, uh, entrusted to, uh, by Christ to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the apostles and hands it on, sacred tradition hands that on in its purity, in its understanding, um, so that uh, led by the light of the spirit, uh, the church can proclaim it uh, uh, faithfully and teach it faithfully. And so uh, the church will say that both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated uh, with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Okay? They're sort of seen as one. So what do we mean when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God? And we read, remember the scripture in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is divinely inspired and useful for teaching and refuting error and the reformation of manners, discipline, etc. Um, so what does that mean? Well, the word inspire means to breathe into, to breathe into. Scripture is God-breathed. The word spirit Ruach means breath, and that is the source of life. Breath is the source of life. So God's word communicates life. And we receive, as the church, we receive that breath from God. And then we, as a church, conspire, which means to breathe together. We are inspired, and then we conspire through scripture. <clears throat> That's a conspiracy theory. Um, how does God speak? What does it mean when we say that God speaks through uh, sacred scripture? How does he communicate through the authors of sacred scripture? Well, it's not like, you know, possession or hypnosis, you know, where sort of God sort of assumes control of the person's hand and writes the Bible out. Uh, it's not like that. And, um, it's not like he's dictating where the person is listening and then writing down everything that God says. Uh, that would be something similar to what I think Islam teaches. <clears throat> but in Christianity, we see that God doesn't violate the free will of the author of sacred scripture, but he speaks through human beings, illuminating them, their intellect, 
uh, and their will and their capacities, perfecting those, using the individual talents and styles of each person that was an author of the scriptures. And, um, and so that's why when you read the Bible, you'll see all kinds of different styles of writing and presentation, right? You'll see history, you'll see poetry, you'll see, you know, storytelling, you'll see proverbs, you know, all sorts of, you'll see mystical writings, all sorts of different ways of uh, presenting themselves by God using different people through time uh, to reveal himself more fully. <clears throat> Here are some quotations just referencing scripture or, or maybe sort of how it works, but uh, from scripture itself. In Isaiah, the Lord said to me, take thee a great book and write it with a man's pen, with a man's hand. God hath, in wisdom, God hath given me to speak as I would and to conceive thoughts worthy of those things that are given to me. And in Luke, we see it seemed good to me having diligently attained to all things from the beginning to write to thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mayst knowest the verity of those words in which thou hast been instructed. And Leo the 13th said, uh, by supernatural power, God so moved and impelled them to write. He was so present to them that they first rightly understood and then willed faithfully to write down and finally expressed in apt words and with infallible truth the things which he ordered in those only. So God is enlightening uh, and uh, giving them, uh, you understand that the, you, the intellect informs the will. When the intellect becomes informed, uh, when the intellect understands the truth, and then that informs the will, and then the person is inspired and wrote, writes sacred scripture. Do I need to admit someone to the room, it says? Sorry, Bernadette. There is a question on the board or the board that says if sacred tradition is unchanging, how does the integration of the Second Vatican Council emulate the Sacra Doctrina, the sacred doctrine? Do you see that on the chat? Wait, say those big words again. If sacred tradition is unchanging, how does the integration of the Second Vatican Council emulate sacred doctrine? Well, I, I guess maybe um, I would go back and I would say sacred tradition is, I don't know that I would say that, well, what, what happens is the world changes, okay? The world changes in front of us. We experience new times, new epochs, new eras, okay? <clears throat> and but and so the light of grace shines on these new uh, situations and new natures and new, new things that we see and come to know. So uh, the light isn't necessarily changing, but our circumstances and situations are changing. And so we need to have a new understanding, you know, right? So, uh, you know, you can uh, uh, turn with me. To the, in the Bible to the chapter on genetic engineering. <laughs> it's not there, right? So, you know, uh, so you have to, so as new things come to, come, to, come to bear and present themselves to us, we have sort of a constant source of light 
um, but um, but that light shines anew on a different situation. And so that's how that's how I understand you know sacred tradition uh, being applied and sacred. And, and, and Catholic teaching being applied to the different yeah, situations. Also a constant deepening, right? Like you're getting closer and closer and a constant revealing. <clears throat> like if you get closer and closer, the revelation, although in changing, it's applied in new ways. So it's a deepening of our understanding of applying the scriptures, mm-hmm. but it's not a change, if that right. makes sense. Like, yes, I mean, and you'll see that through the, if you read the the Bible from beginning to end, you'll see a gradual unfolding of God's uh, nature himself to the people, right? And in in the earliest parts of scripture, it's almost like a child understanding this big powerful person who's intervening in the world on my behalf. But then the more we understand about God, which is revelation culminates in, in Jesus, we get a clearer and clearer picture of who he is through time. So that's a focus. Now, <clears throat> back to um, inspiration itself. St. Thomas said that God um, speaks through a person cooperating with his free will, elevating and perfecting his nature. So St. Thomas was big on saying, look, grace elevates nature. It perfects nature. It doesn't destroy it, doesn't diminish it, but it elevates it and perfects it. So that's what's going on. He said that he gave an interesting analogy, which I think is good. He said, you think about a piece of chalk. Um, You know, uh, if a piece of chalk is just sitting on the chalkboard, it's not doing anything that's particularly interesting. It's just sitting there. But, you know, when I pick up a piece of chalk and I begin to write with it, something amazing happens, right? Uh, the chalk takes on a character which it does not have necessarily by itself. Nothing changes in the chalk uh, in terms of what it is, but by virtue of what it is, it is used, okay? So I am perfecting the nature of the chalk. (coughs) Um, So grace builds upon nature. So how do we read the Bible? and understand it because it presents itself in so many different ways. And there's sort of the uh, patristic or theological approach to reading it goes back to a very long way in church history. And that there's different, you know, different ways of looking, reading, reading uh, scriptures. The first one would be historical and literal. Certain things are written and you can understand them historically and literally, you know, for example, you know, the resurrection of Christ, uh, you know, the, the Babylonian captivity, you know, the history of the kings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> so literal, uh, literal uh, truth, historical truth. Um, there's also what's called a tropological way of reading it. It's, you know, sort of a figurative way, um, a moral metaphor. I mean, what would be some examples of a moral metaphor in scripture? You know, what comes to mind? Um, Maybe the parables of Jesus, for example, a moral metaphor. <clears throat> and then there's the allegorical way of reading scripture. So it's a, a message that's beyond the literal one, for example. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So the allegorical method, maybe like uh, 
you know, <clears throat> uh, the, the, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea as a sort of a symbol of our baptism, you know, being uh, passing through the waters of baptism, the death of the old person that we leave behind, or an anagogical or mystical way of reading scriptures. And maybe I, I think, you know, some the revelation comes to mind as a as an anagogical uh, uh, way of reading scripture. <clears throat> um, and then there's also sort of modern ways, uh, sort of people adopt a historical critical method. And that way they're sort of looking at the scripture more sort of scientifically as just treating it like a, 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 just a text in and of itself. You know, who wrote this? You know, how reliable is it? What are the manuscript sources, et cetera, et cetera? What's the historical context? Um, and it's not really necessarily focusing on, you know, anything supernatural about the scripture. Well, um, and that tends to be the more modern way, you know, we sort of maybe get off track and that's sort of all, all modern uh, scholars do these days, this sort of thing. But Pope Benedict said, we really need to blend both of those methods. We need to utilize the patristic method and the modern method and don't just out of hand, there's a lot of modern people want to out of hand dismiss the idea that God is somehow supernaturally involved. They would dismiss that because it's not very scientific, right? <clears throat> but understand scripture in the light of church teaching and see God's ongoing effort to gradually reveal himself to man through sacred scripture. Um, <clears throat> because the church thinks that all, and understands that all things point to Christ reveals man to himself and reveals the meaning of human history itself. It's all about that. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you just sort of, when you think about it, if you just said, well, I'm going to read the book of Genesis, right? Oh, you know, and I'm looking at it as mo through a modern set of eyes and I say, well, you know, who are these two people and where is this garden and what kind of fruit is this they're talking about? And, you know, if that's all I get out of it, then I've completely missed uh, miss the meaning of sacred scripture. <clears throat> and so scripture, um, remember Moses saw a burning bush. It was burning, but it was not burned up. It was illuminated. It was consumed, but it was not destroyed. God's word is like that. It's a consuming fire. We are inflamed by God's word, yet we remain who we are and what we are. We are not destroyed, but we are transformed by it and illuminated by it. The rabbis say that scripture is fire, black fire on white fire. God's word is a consuming fire. So it's very powerful. It's very powerful. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> so the church teaches that um, God reveals himself to us for one reason, for our well-being. Salvation comes from the root word salute, health, or well-being. God's word is given to us for our own good. A lot of times we might think, well, God, why is God giving me all these rules, Right? I have to do this and do that and what have you, and, and I can't do this and I can't do that. Well, God's quote unquote rules are not just arbitrary. They are truths. 
that lead us to happiness and happiness and peace by submitting ourselves to those truths. We are really submitting us ourselves to the way we are designed to be. Uh, and that, uh, and that by submitting to that, then we become uh, happy and peaceful. They're not just a set of arbitrary propositions. If you think about music, if you think about playing the piano, if I really want to make music, I have to submit myself to the laws of music and I submit myself to the harmonies that are inherent in the structure of music. And that's how I, I submit to that and I cooperate with it and that's how I make music. If I'm just banging on the piano, you know, then I'm not making music. I have to be immersed in that, in that law. Um, <clears throat> and in that, there is freedom, okay? Okay, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and so the result of choosing God, the good and submitting to the truth is freedom. We have the freedom to make music when we submit to the truth of, of the music, right? Um, <clears throat> so how does God reveal himself? Well, there's two ways. One is through natural revelation. Natural revelation is, is are those things that we can understand through reason alone, okay? And the subject of natural, the, the study of natural revelation would be called philosophy, for example. Um, so we can, for example, we can understand, we can come to an understanding of God through observation, observation of nature. We can, in fact, philosophically prove the existence of God <coughs> through philosophy. But that doesn't really tell us, uh, that's a pretty thin slice of God doesn't really tell us a whole lot about God. So supernatural revelation, on the other hand, gives us an understanding of God, uh, which we could not come to by, by reason alone, okay? So, so we have natural revelation, that which you can learn through reason, and supernatural revelation, which we have to have. It has to come from God alone uh, because it, we would never understand it, you know, if it wasn't for God telling us. <clears throat> And we have a responsibility, <clears throat> excuse me all, <clears throat> we have a responsibility to immerse ourselves in scripture. St. Jerome says ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And in the Second Vatican Council says that uh, in De Verbum, that we are to become a people who understand God's word. We are to become interpreters. We're supposed to be interpreters of God's word. <clears throat> and we have a responsibility to discern the truth and interpret it and contemplate it within the authority of tradition and within our hermeneutic. That's a big word. <clears throat> it's always good to have, you know, a jargon that you can use. It uh, makes you sound like you know what you're talking about, right? So <clears throat> here's some jargon for you. Exegesis, which is interpreting sacred scripture. Hermeneutic is sort of the rules maybe that you use to interpret the scripture. So hermeneutics are to exegesis like grammar is to language. Maybe that's one way to think about it. <coughs> but what is, an, what is an interpreter? In Judaism, an interpreter is one who walks with God. In Latin, it means a negotiator or an ambassador. An ambassador 
has to understand the language and the ideas of the king. We have to understand that language and the ideas of the king so that we can communicate accurately on his behalf. And in addition, we also must understand the language and the customs of the people to whom we are communicating, right? So we have to understand as ambassadors, interpreters, which we are called to be, both of those things. <clears throat> but we can't do any of that without prayer and the sacraments. Um, without the language of prayer, we're going to completely miss the language of Scripture. And since Christ is the medium by which we are united to God and the Word, we are united to him through prayer and the sacraments. So we have to have that union with him <clears throat> in order to <clears throat> understand and interpret and instruct. So sacred scripture, what's in it, right? <clears throat> well, the Bible is composed of 73 books written over many, 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 many centuries. Um, the Old Testament is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is comprised of 46 books. The New Testament, 27 books. And I said canon is the ruler measure. Remember, we think about this canon of scripture, but it's also think about canon as, well, what was the basis upon which those books were chosen? What was the ruler measure? Not just a list of books, but what was the rule that was used to, to choose those books as part of sacred scripture? Well, the rule was which books were consistent with sacred tradition, which books are apostolic, which books are consistent with the apostolic tradition. Because <clears throat> you remember that Jesus did not write a book, did he? He did not write a book, but he did found a church and he did invest that church with authority and power. And so if we have this book that we call the Bible, that we say is the infallible word of God, where on earth did the infallible table of contents come from? Okay, Because scripture is not self-defining. You're not going to read scripture and, and say and see a thing that says, yea, verily, these are the books that are to be included in sacred scripture. <clears throat> so it's important to understand that it was the church that identified those books for us in an infallible way. The church identified those books which are considered to be sacred. And so what I'm saying here is be aware that sacred scripture, what we understand as sacred scripture, emanates from sacred tradition. And in that sense, sacred tradition <clears throat> precedes the book, okay? And the Old Testament, of course, is the history of the people of Israel. Actually, it's the, the it's cosmology, too. It's the history of the world in some sense, or, or, or allegorical history of the world. And the New Testament is the mission and the life of Jesus, what we're about as Christians. And the Old Testament is part of our Christian canon. And the Old Testament is divided into four uh, groups of books. The first, the Torah, the law. Um, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, um, <clears throat> the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and then the historical works, 
Joshua through Esther, the wisdom literature, Job through Sirach, and the prophets, Isaiah through 1 and 2 Maccabees. <coughs> and in the Old Testament, we have the earliest Old Testament collections date back to the 12th century that we know of. And in the 7th century, we hear of an authoritative body of scrolls. In 2 Kings, the priest Hilkiah informed the, scri the scribe Shaphan that I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. In the 5th century BC, Israel became known as the people of the book. In the first five books of Torah are called the Pentateuch, Penta five Tuch vessels, the five vessels. And by the fourth century, the historical writings had been accepted by the Jews. In the second century, the prophetic works had been accepted. Uh, well, and so during, yes, sir. There's one yep. quick question. Uh, so does that mean there were books that were left out of scripture? Yes, as a matter of fact, that's true. So, uh, uh, we'll, so the church basically, well, you'll see, we'll discuss that here uh, right now with respect to the Old Testament. Um, so uh, during this latter period, uh, the Septuagint was written. So what's the Septuagint? Well, it means 70, uh, and it's named for the 70 or 72 scholars who wrote it. Um, and it's the Greek translation of scriptures that were written in Alexandria uh, by Jewish scholars. If you think about it, Alexander the Great had uh, conquered the world and Greek was the language of the world. And so, you know, just like uh, you, want, you would want the, uh, the, the, the scriptures to be translated in the common language of the, that most people were familiar with. And so they gathered together and wrote the, the, what was called, it came to be known as the Septuagint. And it was widely disseminated through the Greek speaking world. And it's especially critical for our understanding of the Bible because it is the most ancient of all the texts that are available to us, okay? <clears throat> it's, it gives us an understanding of the meaning of scriptures of how they were originally written in Hebrew and what they were, what they were intended to, how they were intended to be understood. Um, it's also the version that's most frequently quoted in the New Testament. Um, so the Septuagint uh, was the source of the uh, church's source, rather, for the, her Old Testament canon. We also had later in AD 90, the Council of Jamnia, uh, where a group of scribes met uh, to the Jewish scribes met to pick the sacred text, and they chose 39 books, which were, or which are the books that are adopted by, list, adopted by most Protestants. That's 10 less than the Septuagint and seven less than the Catholic scriptures. So that means that the Catholic scriptures, <clears throat> the Catholic church did not take all 10 books, uh, sorry, all of the books of the Septuagint, but, uh, 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 but fewer. And so the seven books that are in the Catholic uh, Old Testament that are from the uh, that are from the Septuagint are called the Deuterocanonical books. The Deuterocanonical books in the Protestant tradition, you might hear them referred to as the Apocrypha. Um, <clears throat> the um, most uh, it, it's interesting, you know, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they found these you know ancient texts uh, in the Judean desert. 
uh, hidden in caves inside of, you know, uh, vessels <laughs> that, um, you know, they could basically reconstruct uh, most of the Bible from those texts. And they found uh, most of the Old Testament, including some of the Deuterocanonical books to show that um, you can see how the people had incorporated both. <clears throat> so what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament was written um, between AD 50 and 5 and 100, sorry, 50 and 100. So within uh, less than 100 years from the, uh, the death of Christ. The New Testament lists were compiled or several were compiled by the fathers of the church as early as the second century. Origen, uh, who studied scripture in seven language, developed a list, as did Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem, and St. John Chrysostom. Uh, pope Damasus in the fourth century was the first pope to speak on it. And by the end of the fourth century, um, the Council of Hippo and the Synod of Rome had determined which texts were to be considered sacred. So over that entire, you know, 300 years, the church had uh, used that time to methodically contemplate and understand and determine which of those books were going to be considered uh, the, the canon of scripture. And then the Council of Trent in 1546 definitively accepted those same texts that were selected in the fourth century. So the Catholic Church has had the same canon of scripture since the fourth century. Okay. <clears throat> the New Testament is composed of, first of all, the Gospels. And there are four of those, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the first three are called the Synoptic Gospels. And the word synoptic means to be seen as one. As you read them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're really similar. They, they look like sort of different versions of the same uh, scripture. And tradition considers Matthew to be the earliest, uh, although most current scholars consider Mark to be the earliest. Uh, tradition considers Matthew to be the earliest, not that it really matters one way or the other. Um, John, the book of John seems to be written toward the end of the first century, but a lot of scholars uh, wonder if the New Testament wasn't actually completely written before 70 AD, because in it you find no mention of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. <clears throat> the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was a, a cataclysmic event that uh, totally turned the world upside down for the Jews, and but it's not mentioned in the New Testament. So that's why some people think it may even have earlier origins. Uh, and after the Gospels, you have the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is sort of considered a second volume of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Um, and then you have the Epistles or Letters, of uh, which most are written by St. Paul or have Pauline origins. And Paul's letters are generally considered to be the oldest. And they're sort of arranged. You ever notice how they're arranged? They're arranged in order of longest to shortest. <laughs> um, very scientific. The, um, uh, and the New Testament concludes with the book of Revelation. <clears throat> A covenantal people. So <clears throat> the word testament is Latin for covenant. And a covenant is a promise. 
It is a unilateral commitment that is made by the king, in this case, God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about God's covenantal relationship with his people. He makes covenants with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses in the Old Testament. And covenants are binding relationships. It's not like an agreement or a contract between men. Uh, it is God who initiates the covenant. They are unilateral and they are for all time. And each successive covenant builds upon and perfects the prior. It doesn't destroy it. And of course, the final covenant was made through Christ in his sacrifice. Covenants are pledges of security from the Lord to the servants who cannot on their own protect themselves. So it's a pledge from God <clears throat> to us for our security and our protection. But it comes with the requirement of the servant. The servant is supposed to be set apart. God says, be holy, be set apart, be circumcised. To be circumcised is to have something cut away that's not useful, a potential source of uncleanness. Be circumcised. Let your hearts be circumcised. So the Jews were set apart for a purpose, uh, a chosen people. And that purpose was to bear the yoke of God, his word, through time, ultimately to the rest of the world, and to ultimately deliver to the world God incarnate, Christ, the word made flesh. <clears throat> to bear a yoke for God, to be his covenantal people is to suffer. The Jews have suffered. In fact, there's uh, only two times in human history when a nation was utterly destroyed and then brought back together. Both times it happened to the Jews, okay? Um, from, the, from the beginning, people have been trying to stamp out the Jews. Uh, and they have suffered by virtue of having to bear that yoke. Christians have suffered. Catholics have suffered from the beginning. The Catholic Church uh, has been uh, persecuted and, attempted, uh, and, and attempts have been made to destroy it from the beginning. <clears throat> so there's a parallel between the suffering of the church and the suffering of the Jews. So to be the chosen people of God is not some, you know, oh, look at me, I'm the chosen person or whatever. It's actually a very ominous and sobering task. Okay. Because, well, yes. We have one question. Yep. Can you give a brief explanation of the difference between a covenant and a sacrament? <clears throat> yes, I can. So, um, so the covenant being, as just as we said, is this agreement, uh, this unilateral agreement that's given, this pledge of security from the king to the servant, right? That's what that is. The sacrament, sacraments are um, material signs that God uses as, as a means to convey grace into the world, okay? Um, What's the old definition of the visible sign of an invisible grace, right? But um, the sacraments are transmit grace 
to the world. They're physical things, material things that transmit, that God uses to transmit grace to the world. Um, so uh, uh, the sacrament uh, uh, contains what it signifies and transmits what it contains. Now, in so, in, so in Vatican II, well, or jo John Paul II would, would say that in a sense then, the church is a sacrament because it's, the church is, uh, by virtue of its suffering in a lot of ways, is transmitting grace to the world in that way, <clears throat> broadly speaking. But that's what a sacrament is, okay? Uh, so to be chosen, as I said, is, is, a, is an ominous and sobering task because as Christians, being Christian in the world that has rejected God is really to invite the fury of the world because it will reject us as well. And so Christians <clears throat> as people of the covenant are called upon to suffer for God's sake, for the sake of the cross. I mean, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And the church in Greek is called ekklesia, ekklesia, the ones who have been called out. We have been called out by God. Um, we have come through the Red Sea. We're going into the desert purification. We have passed through the waters of baptism. The old person is left behind. The old way of life that we lived in Egypt is left behind. We have been called out of it. And we are, we are not to live here as we once lived in Egypt. We are to be transformed. Our, our role as a covenantal people is to be transformed and to carry that transformation through to the world uh, and illuminate the world through the sacraments, as we said, through prayer and through divine revelation. Al, Al yes. one quick question. Does modern-day Judaism offer salvation if they do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God? Does modern-day Judaism offer salvation? Um, I mean, I would think it does. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scholar of Judaism, so, but I, I would think that, uh, I would think that, that, that the Jews believe that salvation is possible for, you know, for people. I think that question uh, kind of piggybacks on the topic of covenant and the fact that covenants don't end. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So yeah. So the uh, so so uh, the the Christ's covenant uh, is a fulfillment and a completion of the uh, of the old covenant. Is that kind of what? The well, that and like the Jewish. So John Paul II in the eighties talked a lot about it. The we believe in the new and everlasting covenant in Jesus, but the Jewish people, a covenant doesn't expire, right? So the Jewish people are still called to fidelity to their covenant, mm -hmm. but no one is saved without Christ, right? right? So salvation is offered to every person through Christ. Right. Um, and so the question is, do they know Christ and are they being consistent with, um, hey, sweet boy, um, are they being consistent in understanding and living into their covenant? So they're called to fidelity within their covenant of understanding. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think if, if I could just piggyback on that, I think one of the things that 
uh, I think this is a really important topic. Um, I know it's not exactly on, on point with what we're talking about here with the Bible and divine revelation. Uh, Christianity is, is the privileged means through which um, we, um, in, in the life in, in participation in the life of Christ, the privilege means through which we um, we come to know the Lord um, and and His revelation. It is not the teaching of the Church that that only those who are baptized can can be saved. Ultimately, that question of salvation is up to the Father, um, and so we have to. I just want to be. Yeah. Um, it, it's a really sensitive and really good question that you're asking, Taylor. Uh, and I and I, I didn't want to sort of get brush up brush it off so fast. Um, and I, I mean, maybe we we can talk about this in a little bit more depth later. But I think it's it's a really important question um, to talk about. Yes, I mean, in some ways, you know, um, you know, Christ is the means by which all people are saved. No one could be saved without Him, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, you have to understand historically, you know, and exactly precisely who Christ was. If I, if I build a bridge over a river, you know, people can choose, people can get across the river, river by virtue of that bridge. They may not know who built the bridge. They may not know where it came from, but yet it's there for them as well too. So, but he's the only way, if you will. Maybe that's a reasonable analogy. <clears throat> see where there are some other questions. <clears throat> Any other questions? This is a great time to ask. Well, and in the, I forget where in the catechism, but it talks about the catechism that there is no salvation outside of the means of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people who don't know Jesus aren't <clears throat> saved because um, Jesus knows them. Like if we, if God forgets anyone for one moment, we cease to exist. Um, and so, yeah, I think I like how what you said about it is, it's a bigger question than it first appears to be, for sure. Um, I forget where, I think it's in, uh, I need to, I'll look up. Uh, well, you could find a discussion of that in Dominus uh came out, I guess, in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot more that could be done on this topic. And, <clears throat> for example, there's an entirely, completely different topic about, you know, uh, for example, why should we trust the Bible, which gets into the historical assessment of, uh, you know, sources and manuscripts and all that sort of thing. There's, you know, uh, the difference between, uh, you know, that and uh you know the the personal testimony of the of the disciples and <clears throat> why that is reliable testimony. You know, so there's a whole there's a lot more that that can be said about uh, divine revelation than we have to available for us in this uh, in this time frame. Do we want to take a quick break and go into our rooms and? Um, maybe surface some questions that uh, we we might have for Al to spend the, with him, to share with him in our last minutes together. 
Carla, thank you for saying what you said about, um, you know, if, if the if God were to forget us, we would cease to exist. I mean, what a profound, I mean, I, I, it's been a while since I've, I've, I've heard that or thought about that. I and mean, you know, what a, what a profound um, insight that is into the, the participation in the life of God that we live every day. Um, and what a great insight that is in, a, in an invitation to, to pray, right? To, to remind God. <laughs> Not that he needs a reminding. But, uh, I, don't want him to, I don't want him to forget. Try that new reminding, but I don't want him to forget. I feel like sometimes we forget and we think we're forgotten. And then, like, I'm like, if we, if he forgets us for one second, we cease to exist. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where you're like, oh, wait, this is way deeper than we even realize. I have to remind myself of it a lot too. I remember, I forget the first time I really heard that, but I was like, yeah. oh, like this is a huge implication. Yeah, it is. You know, it, it just, this, it's amazing how the, the Sunday readings sync up with the topic that we're doing because if there was ever a issue that goes along with his ways or not, my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts. And, you know, I just probably would have said, you know, you just read this and do what I say, and then that's enough. I'm not sure I would have created an entire mechanism to make sure you would know what the right way to do mm -hmm. uh, everything or read would be, so. And I think, like, when you understand the content and unity of Scripture, like, everything in the old reveals the new, and the new is found in the old, like, that radically changed my understanding of it. I had to do a uh, principles of biblical study one and two and at Franciscan and Bergsma, who's an amazing covenant scholar was my teacher. And like, he had us go book by book by book to like, and talk about all the old Testament, like things and how Jesus is the fulfillment. And like, he kept going back and it. it was crazy. You know, uh, Genesis to Jesus is another good sto uh, study for people who want to uh, kind of see how these covenants build upon each other and how uh, where they are is not something that's going to happen, but it is part of God's continual revelation and his continual calling people to himself and into relationship with himself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to see. I mean, you, because you, if you just pick up the Bible and you go, you know, wow, look at this, you know, God's telling these people to, you know, blot these people out from the existence from the face of the earth, you know, the Amalekites or whatever. <laughs> I do. Yeah. That doesn't sound yeah. like God. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you have to understand, you know, see everything in the, in the entire, through the entire view of history and the entire development of the people of God and God's and like, gradual revelation to people. Yeah. And how each promise was fulfilled, I think is like, to remember that God is a God who keeps that promise. Well, I'm going to call them back. Welcome back, everybody. We've got our first question. If you haven't put your question into the chat yet, please go ahead and do so. Uh, here's a question that Mary Slate and her group have for Al. Uh, what is the requirement for being part of the new covenant, faith and baptism? So Al, I turn it back to you. Well, you have to go through RCIA with Bernadette. There you go. All right, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so you're, we are incorporated into the body of Christ through baptism. We become part of the body of Christ. We participate in that covenant through baptism. Now, <clears throat> there are different ways, different, there are three different types of baptism, right? I mean, according to Augustine, first of all, you have baptism by water, which is the sacrament that we're, we're most familiar with. But what are the other types of baptism? There's also what baptism by blood, that's called martyrdom, right? And there's also something called baptism of desire, you know? So we, <clears throat> we are brought into, uh, we are brought into the covenant most commonly through baptism of, of water um, or maybe even desire. But, uh, you know, the, one of the things that's different for Catholics is that, um, you know, we, for Catholics, we recognize a person's ability and free will to walk away from Christ and to reject, and to reject that, uh, to reject those vows, if you will. Um, and because we believe that God gives people the free will to, to, to stay or to go, you know? So <clears throat> that's why we have the theological virtue of hope, you know, um, because we, we know it's possible um, to, to rebel uh, against, uh, against God. Um, but that's, I think that's, would you say anybody else want to chime in on that? This is kind of a follow-up question to that one. Are all forms of baptism equal? Baptism by desire, baptism by blood, and baptism by water. Well, I don't know about equal. They may be equal in effect, but uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know that I want to experience the baptism of, of uh, blood. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so I'm not sure I would, I mean, I think uh, in effect, they, in effect, they may be equal, but obviously not materially equal. One of the times we see baptism by desire is if someone is going through RCIA, and they have, uh, they're in a car accident, they're killed before they are uh, baptized. Well, they're, they're being a part of the process and going through certain rites. In effect, if they are not able to actually receive baptism by water, they are considered baptized by their desire to receive the sacrament. See that same thing for, um, the, the same theological principles in effect for people who um, are, are not in a state of grace um, intend to go to uh, have a plan to go to confession maybe are on their way to it or for some reason can't get to it or there's not there it's not available to them um, and they were to die I think the same the pr same principle obtains it also applies to babies who died in in their infancy the parents desire for the baby to be baptized counts with God. Yeah. All right, so the next question, uh, these, these next couple of questions uh, are related to, uh, are kind of related together uh, based on our topic. Uh, first part, could you explain a little bit about the magisterium and then uh, where are the sacred traditions listed? Is that incorporated 
into the Sacra Doctrina, and then which of the books from the Bible were written longest after the longest time after Jesus's death? <clears throat> um, okay, what was the first part? <laughs> first one. Talk about the Magisterium. Okay, so the Magisterium is sort of the, the teaching authority of the church, okay? So the magisterium is an authority that's invested in the bishops by, um, by Christ himself when he, uh, you know, when he basically ordained the apostles and said, he who hears you hears me, okay? That's kind of the core root of that. And, and the word uh, bishop or bishopric means office, uh, and an office is something that is intended to be handed down through time, uh, passed on through time. So, for example, the office of the presidency, it's an office, it's not a person, okay? I mean, various people through time exercise an office. And so that authority, you see how that authority was handed down through time, because when the disciples themselves in Scripture met after, you know, uh, uh, they, they met to replace Judas, right? Because they said they needed someone to fulfill his office, okay? So that teaching authority in that office gets passed down um, through time. Uh, and it comes from, and it has its source in Christ. Uh, <clears throat> and so the next part of the question, Bernadette? Uh, are the sac where are the sacred traditions listed? And is that incorporated to the sacred, sacred doctrina? Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to see, I, I don't know that there's a book that said here, by the way, is the sacred tradition, right? So you're going to see <clears throat> the teaching of the church promulgated over time through history, uh, primarily through, uh, you know, the, right, the writings of the, the, the bishops, writings of Bishop of Rome, uh, and through the church's uh, teaching in, in council. Uh, so that's where you're going to see and, and each one of those is going to appeal to, you know, what the, uh, you know, the tradition of the church, you know, you'll see them appeal to the church fathers, for example, you have the, the right, you can see, maybe you can read the writings of the, of the church fathers, like the, the, the apostolic fathers, for example, uh, who were, who basically received that uh, their office from the apostles, and, and sudden, you know, those you read read the writings of those people who were instructed by Saint Peter and Saint John, right? Um, so you can you can actually find it, but I don't know that it's necessarily compiled in one one. The tradition would probably be the closest would be catechism, but also in the sacramental life of the church, the development of doctrine, like all of the apostolic letters and writings reveal it over time. It's like revelation um, and interpretation and application as far as tradition. Like if you look at the history of how even our mass developed and sacrament, the sacramental life of that is part of that tradition as well. Mm -hmm. the you would think of encyclicals, right? Every papal encyclical would be part of sacred tradition. Yeah, the, um, the teaching, the, the, when, when the popes are teaching, using their teaching authority, the um, the word tradition the word tradition in Greek from Scripture is paradosis, okay, and it means it means that which is handed on, and also it is the act of handing on, the act of passing on. Um, so Saint Paul said, "Be careful." You know, you read a lot about the traditions of men uh, as being something that the, that uh, Christ was very opposed to, but you also 
read in scripture where St. Paul says, um, <clears throat> be careful to maintain the traditions, the paradosis, you know, that I have, that I've given to, that I've given to you, that I received from Christ. Okay. So you see, there's a distinction between, um, you know, the traditions, quote unquote, of men and then the paradosis of the church. Um, and then the last part of the question, Bernadette. And the last part of the question is which one of the, which of the books from the Bible was written longest after Jesus's death? Well, I mean, uh, so the, 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 the oldest gospel would have been the gospel of John, right? According to most scholars. And then, uh, and I guess Revelation would have been the, the last thing that's, that uh, was written by St. John. And so towards the end of the, end of the first century. So to give you some idea, <clears throat> um, you know, if you, if you compare the Bible to other books of antiquity, right? Um, let's just say uh, the Iliad, right? Um, the, the time, the, the, the time frame between the original writing of the Iliad and the first extant manuscript of the Iliad is, is 500 years, okay? And there are several hundred copies of that, several hundred manuscript copies of that. That's the most well-attested book of antiquity outside of sacred scripture. If you flip over to sacred scripture and you say, the first, you see the first extant manuscripts date to within 25 years of, the, of, the, of their ri original writing. Okay, 25 years, not 500 years, but 20, 25 years. And there are over 20,000 extant manuscripts of, 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 uh, of scripture available. So, <clears throat> so the, the, the manuscript authority of this, of, and I'm talking about the New Testament here, for example, the manuscript authority that you test New Testament in terms of accuracy is actually is rock solid. And if you say, well, I'm not going to believe that. I don't think it's possibly accurate. Then you also have to say, well, I don't think that the writings of Plato are invalid. I don't think that, you know, I don't believe that Caesar fought the Gallic Wars. I don't believe, you know, any of anything else in all of, in all of uh, uh, history. You know, so you have to reject everything, basically. Um, so, so, so that's just kind of a you know a little bit of insight into how you know well attested from a, from a, a historic historicity standpoint that scripture is. One question, uh, going back to what we were talking about in terms of grace and sacraments, what is grace and how does it relate to truth and freedom? Okay, well, I mean, grace in, in grace is, is just like this un, unmerited gift, right? Isn't that kind of what you would call it? Sort of an unmerited gift of God um, uh, that uh, He, you know, provides to us. The, the relationship between truth and freedom. I mean, we 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 participate in God's God's truth by His grace, by His gift, right? And truth is intimately, intimately connected to freedom, like I talked about before, uh, with, with the example of the piano. Um, you know, uh, so, so, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I had, a, I don't know if you had one, but I had like a Superman cape. You know, I got a Superman suit. And, you know, 
I had a choice. You know, I could believe that my Superman suit worked and I could climb on top of the roof and I could act on that belief and I could jump off the roof. Totally believe it's my free will to believe that my Superman suit would work. But, you know, guess what? <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> so if I had actually conformed my thinking to something that was not true, you know, I would have fallen off the roof and broken my leg or maybe even killed myself and, and completely lost my freedom, right? <laughs> so I was free to believe a lie, but if when I believe a lie and I conform myself to it, then I lose my freedom, okay? So ironically, the only way that you can really be free is to actually submit to the truth. If I, you have to cooperate with the law of gravity, you know? You don't rebel against it. You know, you have to cooperate. Same thing as holds true with, with uh, spiritual truth. You have to cooperate with spiritual truth so you can be and become who it is that you are designed to be and made to be in the image of God. And that's, and that's why the word of God is, is, is freedom because it shows you who you are supposed to be and, and provides you an access and understanding of the grace required to get you there to that freedom. So, Remember that, and we don't like it, but freedom involves submission, involves submission to the truth. Well, that was a great way to sum up our uh, time together. Uh, thank you so much, Al, for, for, hmm? Just, if, if you want clarification, like, because this is different, the teaching on grace is different than most churches, because um, we have... We define it a little more clearly as far as sanctifying grace and sacramental grace and actual grace. And we're going to probably, we will go into it on deeper on another class, but if you want to read a little bit more about it, it's Catechism 1966 through 2003, sort of help define out what that looks like if you guys just want to study a little more on like sort of the definitions of grace in general. All right. Uh Thank you so much, Al. Thank you everybody for all your questions. I think that was very helpful. I will edit this video and get it out to you uh, in the next couple of days. A link to it will be posted on the Google Calendar. Um, does anyone have any prayer requests, anything we could pray for one another? Um, just continue to pray for uh, Jasmine and for Sky and Ashley as they are uh, recovering. Uh, pray for those who are unemployed, who are seeking employment, who have suffered financial losses during this uh, COVID crisis. We pray for healing for our nation. We pray for peace. We pray for uh, civility in our public life. And we lift up these prayers and all prayers in that great prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.
Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great day. Don't forget to go to Mass or stream Mass, but definitely go to Mass one way or another. God bless. Nice job, Bye, everyone. Bye.